Hey guys, and welcome to What Was Her Name? The show where I will uncover the stories of domestic abuse survivors. I'm your host, Maya Hooper. So my name is Faith. I'm 25, and I'm going to be talking about two different incidents of sexual assault. Um, One that occurred my sophomore year of high school. And then one that happened during the junior year, during, during my junior year of college. Um, and then one incident of attempted rape that happened my senior year of college. So the first incident was perpetrated by an ex that I briefly dated in high school. And he was a friend of mine at the time. Um, and it was at a high school party. And then the second incident was perpetrated by a friend that I had that I knew through college athletics. Um, we also attended the same church at that time. And then the third incident was actually perpetrated by a complete stranger um, at a local country dance uh, bar hall, uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, So they were three completely different people, um, three completely different stories. So um, with the first incident, I was a sophomore in high school. Um, Around that time, I had just gotten into the party scene. And on one of these particular nights, I had actually lied to my mom about what I was doing, where I was going. And I went to a party with some of my old middle school friends. And the guy who assaulted me was somebody that I went to school with. Um, And I actually, like I said, had dated him for a brief amount of time. Um, And he was particularly involved with this friend group that I was hanging out with. I remember on that night that he kept encouraging me to keep drinking, uh, even when I didn't want to, or when I you know, politely declined more alcohol. And at one point he actually like was pushing a bottle of vodka into my mouth. Um, even though I had attempted to tell him that I didn't want any more and, you know, that I was done. Um, and eventually I got to the point of blacking out. Um, so I lost all of my memory. I, I can't really recall anything that happened in between getting that bottle of vodka shoved into my face and waking up the next morning. Um, and so I woke up the next morning in a part of the uh, the house that I had not been in the night before, or that at least I don't remember. Um, and I woke woke up to my body being completely unclothed, um, and there was you know semen all over my body. It was really disgusting, um, and I remember feeling really shocked and confused. And like I said, I was really disgusted by it. Um, And there was no way that I could have given my consent that night with the amount of alcohol that I'd had. Um, You know, I really thought that I was safe because I was with a trusted group of friends. Um, But unfortunately, they hadn't looked out for me like the way that I had hoped. Um, And I later found out that he had stolen my cell phone um, and he slept with at least one other person that night and he stole her cell phone too. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So that was pretty, pretty shocking. And it I don't know if it was something that he thought about doing beforehand, but it definitely, it went a really, really sour way. Mm-hmm. And then um, in the second incident, so this was my junior year of college, um, I had just gone through a really, really painful breakup um, that left me feeling really broken. And um, when I tried to get back into the dating scene, I really wanted a relationship that was exactly like the last one that I had had. Um, which was obviously not possible, but I did my best to try to make that happen. And uh, so I was, I was a college cheerleader at the time. And um, the guy that I was dating was a college football player. So I really thought that dating another football player uh, was the way to go and that it would be a good move. um, And it it really wasn't, but 
the new guy that I was interested in uh, invited me over to like a watch party um, at his dorm. Uh, and I lived on my, uh, like my college campus at the time. So uh, it was, you know, really easy to just like run over there. But, um, but he invited me for this like watch party at his dorm. Uh, and he told me that some of his friends would be there. So, uh, you know, I was excited for this because I was just, you know, I really wanted to be around people and, uh, and I was just, yeah, really excited to hang out with this guy. I thought it was going to be a really good thing. Um, and so I showed up, I was sober, uh, stayed sober 100% of the time. There actually wasn't alcohol there at all. Um, but when I showed up to his dorm, there were actually just a couple of people there. So it wasn't exactly a watch party situation or what I thought I was walking into. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once I got there, they all immediately left. Um, so that was kind of sketchy to me. And I kind of felt like embarrassed. Cause I was like, okay, like, what did I do wrong? Like there were these people here and then Uh, all of a sudden they just like leave. And I was like really confused. Um, I thought that they like, didn't want to be around me or something. Um, so at first I kind of, you know, or he just tried to like play it off and he turned on his TV and I don't know, like Netflix situation. And so I was like, okay, this is really weird. And I told myself I would just stay for like 30 minutes and then I would make my way out. Cause I didn't want to be like awkward or rude and just be like, okay, well this is lame. And then just like leave. Mm -hmm. Um, however, since I stayed, he, uh, you know, soon made a move on me and I was kind of okay at first with some amount of like kissing and and stuff like that because like I said I was just I was really desperate honestly and at that time and I just really wanted to feel like loved and cared for by somebody um and so at first some of this was all right um but when he started to put his hands under my clothes um I started feeling really uncomfortable because things were moving way too quickly and I wasn't ready for that I didn't want that Um, so I asked him and told him actually several times to stop, but, um, every time that I, you know, would request for my boundary to be respected, he would just meet me with more aggression. Um, and you know, a lot of the, the fine details are a bit hazy because I did kind of go into a trauma response at that point. But I remember that he said something along the lines of having one of his best friends come over. Um, and this really frightens me. Um, like it really frightens me to think about having two people there that, like doing something that I didn't want to be doing. Um, and it kind of just seemed like the two of them did this often, uh, by the language that he was using. So I felt very much backed into a corner and, uh, I just wanted it all to be over, uh, as soon as possible. Um, and so I kind of resorted to like a fawn and a freeze response. So like fawning is like another word for people pleasing. So I was kind of just really willing to do whatever it took for it all to be over as soon as possible. Um, And once it was over, uh, I quickly grabbed my clothes and I ran out of his dorm. I was just sobbing. Uh, It was, it was the worst experience. Um, And that's kind of how uh, that, that ended. Hmm. And then for the the third incident, this was during my senior year of college. um, My friends and I went uh, to go dancing at a local country bar. It's something that we did often. We loved to go dancing. Um, and this particular occasion, we were celebrating the end of uh, finals week for the fall semester. And I remember that this night, I know for a fact, I had three beers, not uncommon for me at that time. Um, so I had two at, you know, a local brewery across the street and only one in the bar itself. Um, I stuck to the same type of alcohol. I remember that, that very clearly. Um, and I knew my own alcohol tolerance at that time. And I knew it with this particular drink that I was drinking. So, um, kind of thought I knew what to expect with myself. Right. So 
Um, when we showed up to the bar, everything was normal. We were having a good time. Everything seemed like it usually would be. Um, it also wasn't uncommon to get split up from this, you know, the large group that we would show up with and we'd find people to dance with. And then eventually we would, you know, kind of all find each other and, you know, whatever it was. Mm. So I wound up meeting somebody that night. Um, and the guy that I had met was pretty chatty. He offered to buy me a drink before we danced and he seemed very nice. So, um, this was at that time, the, the third drink that I was going to have. So I ordered exactly what I was drinking at the brewery just a couple of hours before, um, it was served to me in a can. Uh, it was opened for me by the bartender. Um, and then after consuming it, I went into like a haze is the best way I could describe it. Um, this wasn't like a typical buzz that I would get from alcohol. Um, it was very, very different. Everything kind of started to spin. I lost my ability to remember uh, or to think clearly. And really the only memories that I have from all of that, and this is after going through EMDR and trauma therapy, um, I remember falling into a bush when I was leaving the bar. Uh, again, third drink. I knew my alcohol, alcohol tolerance. That shouldn't have happened, right? Um, and then I remember waking up uh, locked in his vehicle outside of a really unfamiliar and to be really honest with you, really sketchy hotel mm-hmm. um, or motel, I guess. Um, so when I woke up, I realized I had no idea where I was or whose vehicle I was in or what the heck I was doing. Um, luckily I had my phone on me. So I was, uh, I, I grabbed it. And the first person I thought to call was my mom. Um, it was like the middle of the night, like three in the morning, but she answered and, um, she talked to me out of getting in or through getting out of the car. Um, she instructed me to run to the first place I could think of with people in it. And it just so happened to be a Denny's that was nearby. Um, she later told me that I sounded nothing like myself. Um, so that was really interesting to hear after the fact, but I ran into the Stennies and this amazing woman walked up to me and, you know, out of concern, she asked me if I was okay. She had me sit down, she gave me some water. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, she called the, the police for me and everything. Mm-hmm. And she tried to like make sense of what was going on. The guy later came in looking for me and she was able to get him to leave. Oh, wow. Uh, what yeah. was, what was his response when he came in? What was he just, he was, yeah, he, he was, so he was looking for me directly. Um, I don't think he knew my name cause he was not calling my name. Um, but he was like, you know, she, she needs to come with me. She needs to leave. And she was like, no, she needs to stay here. Um, so it all just kind of seemed very sketchy. And he was, I remember he was like pulling my arm, like, cause I was sitting in a booth. And so he was like pulling me and I was like hanging on to the bottom of it. And I was just like trying not to let him pull me off of it. Wow. Yeah. So she stayed with me, um, and, uh, and, and she was able to help me get in contact with some of my friends who took me to the hospital, uh, just about an hour later. Um, and I also found out later that the, the bartenders at this particular bar have a history of slipping substances into other people's drinks and, um, contributing to like a date rape type of situation. Wow. But luckily for me, it seems like I kind of got out in time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's first off, like, I'm just, I feel just really sorry that this is something that is in your story, because I feel like a lot of times, like we have an inexperience with assault and we think that it could be the last time, like it's kind of like a one and done situation, but it's really not. Mm -hmm. And 
I feel like this season, um, as the season continues, um, we're really going to get into a continued series of, um, multiple assaults. It's not just one single assault and it's, I mean, it's scary because you didn't just experience this one time. You experienced this three times and all sort of also in different ways. Um, there's not just like one specific thing that we have to watch out for when it comes to sexual assault, but sexual assault in the ways that people can, you know, trap us in situations, um, are looking, they all look very different, whether it's drugging a drink, um, you know, it's, it's luring you or, or someone who's sort of kind of like, I think scouting out and, you know, you trust someone, but then they're not well-intentioned. There's a lot of different methods. I think that people use, um, leading up to sexual assault. And so I think that your story is, wow, really sad and, and breaks my heart that you went through it also really insightful. And I've been really expectant to hear your story and for others to hear your story, because you sort of shed light on many different scenarios where, sexual assault has taken place in your life and they all look very different. Yeah. I think that one thing that people tend to think about when they think about sexual assault is, you know, oh, it's, you know, the stranger and it's, you know, the thing on the side of the road, but actually most of the time it is perpetrated by somebody that, you know, right. And, and they use that, right. Like it's a, it's a power type of dynamic where that's used and weaponized. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, that's why, honestly, I think that's why a lot of people don't end up speaking out about their assault or why they don't report it. Mm-hmm. I believe is because a lot of people know the people who've done it or are in situations where Yeah. I mean, a majority of the people I've interviewed, not just within the series two, but also in season one have been assaulted by people they knew that they were either in a relationship with, um, or a friend. And that's a very scary thing to want to talk about or report when it's somebody who, you know, because it adds a level of confusion that maybe, you know, you wouldn't have if you were walking down an alleyway late at night and, you know, this kind of like a uh, picture that we have of, of what assault looks like, which it does happen and is terrible, but is not, it's it, the chances of you being assaulted by somebody, somebody, you know, are much higher than you being jumped in an alleyway late at night, you know? Right. Right. And I would, I would definitely really agree with you that more often than not, that's why people don't report. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so with your experiences, when did you realize when you were in danger? Because I know for some people, they didn't realize they were in danger until it was over, or maybe they did halfway through, or, you know, in the very beginning, um, when sort of did you, did it click with you that you were not safe and that you were in an unsafe situation? Yeah. So this one is kind of a tricky question because I don't have a ton of memories, right. in in some of these different things that happen, Mm-hmm. Um, I would say during the first incident, I didn't know I was in danger until I woke up the next morning, right? Like, um, 
and, and there might've been things that were going on in my mind at that time, but I really can't even recall those memories because I was very blacked out at that point. Right. Um, and, and during the second incident, like I would say I was more on edge when I walked into his dorm and it wasn't what I thought I was going to be walking into. Um, but it actually wasn't until when I was saying no, and that wasn't being listened to that I knew that something was wrong and that I was in danger. So that one was maybe a bit more clear. And then during the third incident, I had no idea I was in danger until I woke up, walked in an unfamiliar vehicle outside of this motel that I'd never seen before um, and had no recollection of arriving to. Hmm. You had been drugged and you weren't able to have a level headedness that maybe you would have had if you weren't obviously because you have um, a drug inside of you and it's um, limiting your capability to be able to make, um, to run, you know, physically, mentally. Um, but in other situations, when we're faced with trauma, we will tend to freeze and fawn because we, um, think that if we allow it and it can make the time pass by and we can just get through it, then we don't just, you know, say no, yell and like slap and scream and run out of the room. And it's a really normal response to have, but I think it makes a lot of times survivors of sexual assault feel very guilty because Mm -hmm. it poses that question, um, that they're often fighting with themselves about, which is, well, why didn't I, why didn't I stop it? Or why didn't I say no? Um, how did I let myself get in this situation? Maybe I shouldn't have drank three beers, you know, all these, you know, things start to come up that I think often survivors are fighting themselves with. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really glad that you brought that up in your own story, because a lot of times we block out trauma because it's difficult to deal with. And the way that maybe we handled it in the moment, we don't really understand that. And so I think it's important to talk about what happens when you're in the midst of trauma and, um, it's very real. Yeah. And a lot of people typically tend to talk about fight and flight, right? You either, you know, fight and you're, you know, tearing through it or you run away. And so the freeze and the fawn responses are not ones that people are as familiar with either when they're experiencing it or when they're like learning about it. They're like, oh, I've never heard of this before. Right. But they're, they're all means of self-protection. Right. And they all kind of serve a purpose. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually reading this book. Um, it's called healing rage. And, um, I always like preface when I'm talking to my friends, cause I'm like, I'm not a rageful person, but I'm reading this book called healing rage, <laughs> <laughs> such an aggressive name. Um, <clears throat> but my therapist had recommended it for me and it's talking a lot about trauma and how we carry trauma in our bodies. And, they talked about this, the author had talked about this term that I'd, I'd actually never heard before. And, um, it's like where you are in the middle of a traumatic situation and you sort of split where you have this perspective of like, like, for example, like in your um, situation where I think it was the second assault where you just like really wanted to be loved. And so you were kind of remaining in this situation because you wanted and craved this love. 
And the way that he was showing you, you know, quote unquote love was obviously not love. And he was taking um, advantage of you and he was not respecting your body. But um, in traumatic situations, like we can tend to mix and confuse those. And it can often um, be even something stemming like in our childhood. Like I know um, for me, for example, I um, didn't always necessarily have a healthy relationship with a certain family member who would often show love, but also not show love and show pain. And so I confused and mixed the two. And so um, the way that I perceived their love as a kid was stronger than the way I perceived their pain. And so as I got older, um, when I was put in a situation where there was someone who was causing me pain, I also identified that as love because as a kid, I couldn't really separate the two. Um, because all I knew was, you know, this person was hurting me, but also then afterwards was very kind to me and did X, Y, Z to show me love. And so it's a really interesting book. Like I'm probably, um, just saying it incorrectly because there's very, like a lot of intricacy that comes with this term. And like, um, this book just provides a lot of insight into it, but it really made me think about this season and how oftentimes like, I think there's a lot within our own stories and within our own experiences um, that play a part in um, sort of our perspective and the way that we maybe handle the situation, but also perceive the situation. And there's definitely a lot to unpack there, but I don't know if that makes sense, but it just, yeah, no, that was so insightful. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was really helpful, you know, for people, for me who has um, trauma, that I'm, you know, still working through in sort of wanting to understand why, you know, I make, I make the decisions I do, or, you know, have been in the certain relationships I have and, you know, kind of unpacking my own upbringing. Um, so <clears throat> yeah, it's really interesting for yeah. sure. Yeah. But definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I know for, for me, a lot of, there is a lot of stuff that stems from my childhood, which is you know, equally as messy as what we're talking about right now, maybe even more so, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's always really helpful to go backwards, not to like unpack and live there. Right. But just to kind of understand how and why we maybe did what we did. Right. Not that any of this was my fault, but, um, but you know, like there was some like decision-making like leading up to some of these things and, um, and just kind of understanding where that came from. Right. So it's helpful to go backwards just to kind of have better insight as to like what was going on to really heal that part of ourselves. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I love that you said that as well. Like, cause it's, I mean, it's so solid that the fact that none of, none of it was your fault. Um, and I think it's easy for people on the outside um, who maybe haven't experienced this or haven't had a loved one who's experienced this um, to kind of hold the perspective of, well, you know, maybe if so-and-so wouldn't have put themselves in this situation or dressed as this certain way, or, you know, drank so much, then, then this wouldn't have asked, this wouldn't have hap- happened. And that phrase of, you know, well, they asked for it kind of thing, or I don't know, boys will be boys or whatever the term may be like, <clears throat> or the perspective, I think, um, it's, it's 
insightful to be able to like take a step back and, and say like, well, how did I get here and what led me to this? But also, yeah, holding that um, ground of sort of like, you know, there's nothing that I could have done really, really differently. This person was already going to do this, whether it was to me or to somebody else, the likelihood that they have assaulted um, somebody else is, is very high. And um, yeah, but I think it's, it's definitely interesting. I think there's a lot of things like psychologically that I just like love to learn about and unpack as I'm unpacking my trauma and unpacking other people's trauma, because yeah, I think learning kind of, you know, why we make the decisions we do, but also like how trauma affects us. And I think sometimes we think that by not dealing with things that it will just go away. Um, but it, it doesn't, it stays in the body. Um, and it's really important to process it, which it sounds like you have been like in therapy and doing different types of therapies, which is, which is really good and really, really healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as we know, sexual assault can affect us in many different ways. Like we were just saying, um, how did your, um, assaults affect you? You can go individually one by one or, um, maybe as a whole, I'm curious to know kind of like how it sort of started to build within you after each assault, um, happened. And, you know, obviously kind of, I, I think probably there was a point where you're like, come on, like I already, again, this is happening. Like it probably discouraged you from certain things. So yeah, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. And you just, you really just took the words out of my mouth. (laughs) Um, I think that was like the just the message that kept playing in my head. Like, how is this happening again? How did this happen to me again? Right. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of shame from that. Right. Because I'm like, okay, well, what, what did I do to put myself in this situation? Right. Like that, those were the, the questions that I kept asking myself. And, um, it was brutal. <laughs> it was really brutal to just think that, you know, that it was all my fault. Um, so there, there was a lot of shame that I had to deal with and wrestle with and, you know, I just, I generally felt just like really dirty. Um, I had a lot of periods where I just, I didn't care about my reputation. I didn't care about my standards or my own value. And, um, this was especially present in high school, um, when this like first happened. Right. But, um, but even in my adult life, um, you know, I kind of, I would find myself in a place where I was really just like depressed or I I was highly anxious. Um, I had a lot of fear, um, that I had, to figure out how to work through. Right. So, um, you know, I generally just felt really unsafe. A lot of the time I was very hyper aware of things. Um, I had PTSD, right. So, um, I would have a lot of like flashbacks, hypervigilance, those types of things. Those are, those are like common symptoms of PTSD. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, those are some of the things that I experienced and I would say definitely probably with each time. Right. Um, and that would just like look differently depending on the circumstance. Like I remember, um, after the third incident, right. This was kind of like where that like peak of the shame kind of came in, um, in terms of like, how did this happen? Right. Um, cause you know, that was the third time. Um, but around that time, like my symptoms of, you know, fear, trauma, whatever you want to call it. Um, I had just like, I was just like very on edge all of the time. And, um, I actually developed this like fear of men actually. Um, that was really 
difficult to work through. Um, and I think that still has, you know, maybe some uh, like lingering effects today. Not, not quite as much, of course, because I'm married and I cannot be afraid of my husband. <laughs> right. But, um, but definitely in the sense of like, you know, my, my population that I work with, uh, you know, for, for my job and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also say like, kind of just like touching on the shame that I, I did have these like periods of hypersexuality, um, which I think is not really talked about a lot, um, you know, openly in trauma, trauma, uh, discussions, um, mm-hmm. of just like, you know, there are some people that can completely like shut down in the area of intimacy, but I actually had this like hyper experience, um, where I sought out intimacy, um, and I was looking for, you know, love from men specifically who didn't love me at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know if you were able to listen to the last episode, but, um, um, was it the last episode or two episodes ago? Um, the story with Nikki, she shared how she struggled with, um, hypersexuality as well. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, one thing that she said that stood out to me, and I think honestly, I will never forget is she said that she was hypersexual because at least she could decide when and who she did it with. Mm. And that really struck me because, you know, I always kind of wondered why, why hypersexuality when, um, there was a situation that, you know, caused so much pain and why is this like such a common response? And it, she proves a really good point that at least you could choose like, who you were doing it with and where you were doing it. And sort of this sense of like, I think as, um, people who are in the middle of trauma and dealing with it and having PTSD, um, you're not in control of your own, um, trauma or your own PTSD. Like you couldn't control what happened to you. Um, you can't control what situations are going to trigger you. You can control the way you respond to it, but until you really develop those techniques, um, which takes you know, time and therapy and healing, um, you often feel quite out of control. And so to gain a sense of, of control while dealing with trauma and recovering and healing, I think it's, it makes perfect sense now to me why hypersexuality is something that often like, um, you know, people turn to, um, because it, 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 ga- it gives you a sense of, of, of control of being able to, you know, manifest situations where, um, you're playing a part in the decision and, um, yeah. So I don't know that. Yeah. But that it tracks re- for sure. That definitely tracks because I'm thinking about this like first incident. Right. And I didn't have a whole lot of choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't even like, remember, uh, you know, a lot of the things that were going on, it was very much out of control of the situation and, um, and what was being, I don't know, presented of me, I guess. And, um, one of the ways actually that this wound up, you know, affecting me is I actually wound up developing an eating disorder, um, uh, because I just felt so out of control of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like the one thing that I could control was what I was doing with my body. Right. And so, um, I think that, those two things definitely tie in together. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think it's interesting just to hear how, you know, just to hear the series of events and sort of your internal um, spiral um, in the ways that it affected you, whether it be through your relationships or with food and your body and self-image and, you know, fear of men, um, all very normal. Um, and yeah, it, it manifests in, in many different ways. Like there's truly not just like one way, but it, it can manifest in so many different ways. Um, I think that the next question I have is just, um, like, I know you said that you at one point had called your mom in the car in your third experience. Um, were you able to tell others what had happened to you or what did that look like? Um, so for that specific experience that you brought up, yeah, I, I, I did have to tell um, people because the, the person that I had met in that Denny's, she called the police and um, from there, there was an, a whole investigation. Um, I was taken to the hospital. So um, at that point, I had to make a report, right? Because I was kind of, somebody basically initiated that process for me. Right. Um, however, I, I didn't tell anyone in the other two experience. So, that, so this is kind of, you know, starts to go into this area of like, you know, to report or not to report. So um, after the first experience, I, I tried to tell one of my friends and, um, you know, like I said, this is somebody that we all knew. Um, and so I was immediately met with comments like, no way, he'd never do that. Um, you know, things like that. And I, I learned at that point that it was his word against mine. He had the upper hand. I felt at that time that nobody was going to believe me. Mm-hmm. And so after that one person basically <clears throat> shut down, you know, here's what happened to me. Um, I decided to not tell anyone else, right? Like I was really fearful. So I never told my parents, um, you know, another part of this is I had like lied that I was going to go to that party in the first place. So I was really terrified of how much trouble I would be in, right. If she, if she knew the truth. So, um, after the second incident, um, I did go to one of my friend's dorms. She believed me and, and asked me if I wanted to make a report, but I think just, you know, at that time I was just so fearful of making a report and what that would mean. Right. And at this point I had heard a lot of stories. Um, you know, I'm talking about the second incident. So So this kind of gets us into like college athletics and I guess like the politics of that. Right. Um, So since he was on the football team, that was something I had to really consider. Like I was, I was also on a, you know, the same uh, college cheer team. So there was a lot to consider in that regard. And there's actually been a lot of sexual assault, you know, reports from women who have been assaulted by men or, you know, athletes on the specific football team. So I, I really had to consider that. Um, and, and to me, I was really fearful of what could come up if I said something, Hmm. um, kind of also going into like, you know, did I tell anybody, you know, that kind of that question, um, there was one specific thing that happened. And, um, like I said, he was, he was a college football player. Um, but then he also went to my church occasionally, Um, and I remember there was this one specific event, uh, that we, that we had had for, you know, the college young adult group. And it was this big event that they held every year. Um, and he showed up to that event. I was actually volunteering. Um, and I was like one of the greeters that night 
and he showed up and I, I was had like a very severe panic attack because that was like the first time that I had seen him since it happened and um and you know I had to like you know obviously move out of the way because I was having a panic attack and there were a lot of people and I needed to kind of self-soothe and re-regulate and um and you know one of my friends went to check on me and she's like what's going on and you know and I kind of told her like the whole story and what she responded to me with was God loves him too. He needs forgiveness. And yes, like I I'm Christian. Right. So I, I believe that's true, but, um, like I never had the courage to hold him accountable after that was spoken. Right. Because although that's true, like, that's not what I needed to hear in that moment. And if that was something that a friend said to me, like, what would somebody that I don't even know, like, what would they say to me? Right. Or, or somebody who's trying to protect him. Right. So it's just like kind of terrifying to think of like, this happened to me and I know it to be truth. Right. Mm-hmm. But what happens when somebody doesn't believe you? And that that's just like the most anxiety provoking thing, I think, out of all of this. Yeah. And I Which think- is kind of like scary to think about. Right. Because it's like that to me is even scarier than it happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would I would agree. I think that <clears throat> like I would really like to do a couple of like episodes with a therapist and sort of talk about, you know, what is the appropriate and correct response when being confronted with a a confession of assault and whether that be a friend, family, you know, mentor, whatever it may be. I think that at the end of the day, the main point though, is like, as someone on the outside listening in on someone's confession of assault, it is not your responsibility to decide whether or not what they're saying is true or not. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's where a lot of people go wrong. And I think that like people need to get that through their heads that like whether they think that this happened or not does not really matter because somebody is standing in front of you saying that this happened. And I think obviously we have to use wisdom and discernment, but whether or not you agree does not need to be vocalized. And I think there's a way to support somebody in an emotional, compassionate, caring way, um, without needing to necessarily state your opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, because sometimes your opinions aren't necessarily needed all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And people think that their opinion just needs to be heard and vocalized. And especially right now in our society, I think that everybody has an opinion about everything, which is in some ways great because people are speaking out about their, you know, beliefs. Whereas, you know, maybe 15 years ago, everybody was sort of like blending together and sort of just all following each other. Um, but I don't think that everybody's opinion needs to be vocalized 24 seven. And it's like, there's a level of just compassion that I feel like some people are missing in the way to respond, whether it's intentional or not. I think that at the end of the day, it's like, sometimes you just need to listen and be compassionate and like, keep your opinions to yourself. And it's not your job to say like, this did happen or this didn't happen because you weren't there only this person was there. And that's, that's all that matters at the end of the day, you know? Right. Um, I think think one of the things that I've learned, uh, more so recently, but one of the things that I've learned is 
that a lot of times when somebody's coming to you and they're, they're sharing something really vulnerable with you, um, they just want you to listen, right? Like they, they don't necessarily want your opinion. And I think a lot of times we, we think that it's going to help, right? Like, oh, this person's coming to me because they want my advice, but, but actually most of the time they're not looking for that. Right. And, and that can be sometimes really hard. Um, but especially when somebody's sharing their trauma, right? Like they, they probably don't need to hear something like that. And, and it all comes out of a place of good intention, I think. Um, but a lot of times people just want you to hold space for them. Right. Yeah. Which is why I really appreciate what you do, right? Because you're just literally holding a space for somebody to share their story and, you know, to, you know, process or whatever they need to do. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for saying that. I think there's always a difficulty in trying to like hold the line of, you know, wanting people to share their experiences and trauma and not necessarily needing to interject 24 seven. And then sometimes like conversation just naturally comes up. Um, cause there's conversations that I think are important to talk about and, um, are created through hearing people's stories like yours today. Um, yeah. Um, what was the most, I know that you were sharing the most painful parts of your story and kind of going one by one. Um, I know that you had the last story and, um, and it, I would love for you to share that incident that happened that led to that sort of just, I think I really snowballed to a point where, I mean, it kind of comes to a close and something that we can kind of like talk about as well that I think is really important. Yeah. Um, you were talking about the last time, right? Yes. Okay. Um, so the most painful part of the third incident that happened was being failed by the system, um, to be honest. Um, and in a system that's supposed to protect survivors. So I, I did have to make a report, right? Like I went to the hospital, I went to the rape crisis center. I went, had to do all these different things, talk to all these people, talk to the police. Right. Um, and so I, I gave everything, uh, to them. Um, I did everything that I was supposed to do, but the, the really devastating part was that there wasn't enough evidence to build a solid case. Um, so, you know, like my, my rape kit came back inconclusive. Um, the talk screen that they did on me, uh, it didn't include the, you know, whatever was in my system, right? Because they just did like the basic, I think there was like maybe three or four that they ran through. I don't, I don't know exactly. Um, but whatever he gave me was not on there, right? So they just, they did not have enough information. And um, so I, you know, I had applied for financial assistance because, you know, I, I had this giant hospital bill that I had to pay. Um, you know, and I, I didn't have the money for it. Like I was a Brooke college student. Um, so, so getting the rejection letter for that financial assistance was pretty devastating. Um, and then just getting, like, I got this like standardized letter in the mail and it was like, um, it said something along the lines of like, you know, every, you know, this is inconclusive. Um, there's, there's nothing we can do at this point. We are so sorry that this happened to you, but unfortunately there's nothing else we can do. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me, right? Like, you've got to be kidding me because, you know, here I am, this like third thing that's happened. Um, and there's no evidence, even though there was like a witness there who was able to like, 
you know, see the state that I was in, you know, like the police showed up to that Denny's and they talked to me. I don't even know what I was saying. Like, I don't even remember because, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't even know what was in my system. Right. And it's like, yeah, I would Mm -hmm. say that's, that was the most painful part because I was like, you know, I finally, I finally did it. Right. Like I finally did what I needed to do, but that wasn't good enough. Right. I think that's frustrating. It's beyond frustrating. That's not even like the correct word to use. There's probably other words to use that are not nice words, but I think frustrating is the word I'm going to use because I think it's just like, yeah, just, I think that the more that I am sitting on the other end, hearing stories like yours and hearing the lack of justice, it's infuriating because I've experienced obviously injustice within my own life. And I definitely can say that I know what it feels like to have loads of proof and loads of experiences and for nobody to seem to hear me or believe me. And it sort of leaves, it poses this question or leaves this kind of space of, you know, what's the point of speaking up if nobody's going to listen? And I think that that's why I'm really grateful that God has opened up this space for what was her name, because it's sort of a space reserved for people to share their stories and mostly injustice and to be able to share your story, even though there is a lack of justice within your own stories, I believe that God is taking these stories and sort of like allowing for others who need to hear specific stories um, for them to hear it. And it's been really neat on the receiving end while some may, may never know, you know, they share their story and they're like, did this help anyone? And I'm like, I don't know. I hope so. You know, um, I can't say yeah, hundred percent, but <clears throat> then, you know, come uh, six months later and I, I get a message from a girl, you know, recently from our first season, she said, you know, that she listened to the entire first season and <clears throat> she was like, I realized I was being abused. Like mm-hmm. I had no idea. And she's like, and then I left him and I got a therapist and I'm in counseling and I'm out. And it's like, if it's just this one person, like that's what this is for while there's a lack of injustice and whoever this person is, is still out there. Um, there's still there's God's still using your story and he's not finished with it. And there's only so much that we can do as survivors. And I think that you did all of the things that you could to, try and bring justice. And really from that point on, I think it's really just in God's hands and it's where you're able to just like lay it down at his feet and say, you know what, I've done all the things that I know how to do. And now it's really just in your court because ultimately God is a God of justice and he hates injustice and he hates sin. And so I am totally like, I just trust. And I know that God will take care of this, whether it's here on earth or it's on the other side in heaven. I don't really know, um, <clears throat> which is the hard part, but I do, you know, believe that. And I think that kind of brings us around to like the resolution portion at the end. Um, 
I know that you, I think you already kind of explained a lot of these. I may cut this part out. I don't think we need to go into this. Looks like. Well, and and I, would it be okay if I even just like touch on what you just shared? Because I feel like that, that really spoke to. Yeah, of course. um, So when you were kind of talking about like, we're not, we might not necessarily see justice in this lifetime. Right. And I think that that's something that I think is the truth. Right. Um, that, you know, like justice is out of my hands. Um, one of those things that I probably like would have been really hard for me to hear right back in that, in that time. And that's something that I've kind of had to come to terms with and work through, right? Like justice is not my job, right? Like I can do what I can do. I can work within my own, circle of control, I can, I can try. Right. But ultimately like, you know, justice is not mine to get. Um, and, and that's, that's my conviction, right? Like that might not be, um, like a non-believers conviction. Right. But, um, but like, ultimately like that's, that's for God to, to deal with. And, you know, I will, we will see it at some point. Right. But, um, but it's okay if it's not, at least for me, it's okay right now. If, if I'm not going to see that while I'm in this life. Right. But right. Yeah. And I think it's not something that is an easy thing to come to terms with. And I know created a lot of bitterness and resentment within my heart towards God for a very long time. And I think if you're not in that place and you're listening to this and it infuriates you or angers you to hear that, I am so understanding of that and recognize that and have felt like that identical way. And it's fine if you're not in that place. I think that it's a process. Um, if you're in the process right now, like I've been in it, you've been in it. And yeah, I'm just, my hope is that through this podcast that it sheds light on things and it may help you heal in whatever way that that looks like and relate in whatever form that that may be. Um, yeah. So that being said, um, just kind of coming full circle, um, what are your visions and dreams now? Um, tell us where you're at now in your life. Yeah. So I'm, I'm at a much better place in my life than I was back then. I'm, I've done a lot of work, uh, both in therapy and, and also just, like with the Lord, right? Like a lot that I've just given to him. Um, I felt a lot of freedom from that when I was able to just like lay everything at his feet and just give up that control that I felt like I needed to have over all of it. Um, so I don't feel this like intense amount of shame, you know, to the extent that I did. And, um, I'm actually married now. Um, (laughs) so I'm married to this wonderful man, uh, who always makes me feel safe. He's, you know, everything that I prayed for. Um, I also like in my professional life, I'm also a therapist. Um, my first therapist that I worked with back in high school, she had such a profound effect on my life. And back then I was like, oh, I would, I would like to do something in this arena. And I never really uh, thought that it was going to happen. And then uh, I went to college and I kind of fell in love with the the psychology field. And, um, and I went on to pursue a, a social work degree in, um, in my graduate program. And so I work as a therapist now and I specialize in working with women. I love working with women. Um, so I love my job. I love my work. Um, I don't see myself doing anything else. Um, 
And then just like in terms of like a vision or like a dream that I have, um, my dream is to, to one day actually open a nonprofit to address like women's specific issues. Um, and this is something I've actually not talked to a lot of people about. Um, it's one of those things that really scares me. And I think that's kind of why I feel so called to do it, <laughs> right? Because I'm like, I don't want to do this, God. Like, you know, this is really scary and it really intimidates me. But I just think of the the effect that it could have on you know, the community around me and, um, I'm very passionate about it. So I, I really hope that that comes to fruition one day. That's amazing. I didn't know you were a therapist. Here I am like telling you terms. You're like, I already know that mom. <laughs> I'm like, no, that's okay. No, I, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I work at a, a clinic here in town and yeah, it's just, it's wonderful work. Um, awesome. very rewarding work. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, yeah. I think it's so cool just like hearing people's stories and then um, the other side and how they um, a lot of women want to open a nonprofit and it makes me really excited um, just for their futures just how others may connect through this and yeah I think like we all have two options really Um, and I think sitting in your pain is very healthy in some ways, but I think there comes a point where you have to really, you come at a crossroad with yourself and you're like, okay, I can't keep, like, I can't keep being hypersexual or I can't keep, I'm going to, you know, being destructive or self-sabotaging my relationships or whatever it is. And then having this crossroads with yourself where you say, okay, like I'm going to make the decision to, um, heal and to work my trauma and to come out on the other side and, um, it's beautiful to hear like where you're at now in your life and it provides hope for me. And I know others to be able to hear that you're on the other side. And while I'm sure it's not perfect, you, um, you're healing, you're growing, you're dreaming and that's beautiful. I mean, that's incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I think when it comes to like those two different options, those two different, like Uh, like that crossroad that you call it right I think that's definitely something that we all kind of have to do in our own timing and you 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 absolutely can't rush that first step right you have to be able to sit with it and to work through it um and not everybody you know chooses to to make meaning from it but that's something maybe I've done um and it's something that I use in my work right like I'm not going to like self-disclose to my clients but um but just to it it gave me in a different element of compassion and empathy that maybe I, um, maybe I did have the whole time. Maybe I didn't, you know, I don't know, but, um, but it definitely guides my work and it, it makes me feel much more connected and, and passionate about my work. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Um, what is one thing that you would say to our listeners as a tip? I would say probably like the most important things that I would say is first that coercion is not consent. Um, it's not consent, right? Intoxication is not consent. Um, it actually really inhibits our ability to give consent. And, um, and so just, you know, kind of convincing somebody into doing something that's not okay. Right. Um, and I think a lot of the people that I've talked to, if there, if there was this element of like coercion, right there, there seems to be like a different type of shame experience that happens with that. Um, but, you know, somebody, somebody like convincing you of it, or, or even if you wanted to, and then you changed your mind, like that's still not consent. Right. Um, I would say like the second thing that I would want to share is that like, you know, when, 
when a survivor is telling their short their story, um, you know, believing them can change the entire trajectory of that person's experience. Um, it certainly would have changed mine in a lot of ways, right? So just for somebody to have said, like, I believe you and I hear you and, you know, and I'm going to stay with you through this, right? Like those things are very impactful. And so I think, I think a lot of people, if you're listening to this and maybe somebody has shared something with you, or maybe somebody will in the future, if you're fearful of like, what, what if I say something wrong? the best thing that you could do is just hold space for them and just let that survivor know that you believe them. Right. Because most people are not going to be lying about this. Um, I wish I had the statistics on hand, but uh, the vast majority of, of survivors, whether it's of assault or abuse, um, they're not lying. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so just sharing that, that you believe that person can make a really big difference. Yeah. And then I would say probably like the last thing that I would want to share is that there's many reasons that women and and people, right. Um, that people choose not to report. So if somebody's speaking up later in life, it's probably because they've done a lot of work to be able to do do so. Um, I think that, you know, especially in like, you know, there's been a lot of high profile stories, I guess, right. Of like women coming out later in life about what's happened to them. And a lot of people are like, well, why didn't that person just like report it 20 years ago? And it's, it's so much more complex than that. Right. Um, I probably will not, you know, ever try to go back and, and try to bring light to something unless, I don't know, I guess I wouldn't say never, but I'm probably not going to go backwards and, and open something back up like this. But if somebody's doing that, it's probably because they need to, or they finally have the courage, you know, it, it takes a lot to be able to make a report. And we, we talked about like all the different reasons why somebody would be fearful to. Um, so just kind of understanding that there's a lot that goes on in the mind of a person after a trauma like this. Um, so just kind of like understanding that or doing your best too. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Hey Faith, thank you so much for coming on. I'm truly just like so grateful that you were willing to share your story. And I think um, in a future series that I'd love to do where we just kind of get like a bunch of different therapists on and touch on different topics to kind of educate people who are whether, you know, survivors or just listening family members. Um, it'd be cool to have you on another time. and um, just kind of picking your brain. Yeah. About things. So <clears throat> I'm sure it's not the last time that you're going to be on here. <laughs> Um, but thank you again. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I'm just super expectant for people to listen to this and just, yeah, see what God does with it. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for, for holding this space for people. I know that there's been so many women, so many people that this has impacted and, um, actually people in my personal life that your, your podcast, your, you know, your Instagram, your, your efforts and all the things that you've poured yourself into that it's, it's really impacted me. It's impacted other people in my life and, um, it's just reaching so many people. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. That truly means so much. Um, alrighty. Well guys tune in next week on Thursday. We'll um, have another story and yeah. Thank you for listening.